This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 149, Feelings, Part 2. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in again. This is the second half of my conversation with Chris Emerson and Steve Wolfgang. Chris Emerson is the host of the Excel Still More podcast and preacher for the Lindale Church of Christ. Steve Wolfgang is the evangelist for the Downers Grove Church of Christ in suburban Chicago. In this, the final part of our conversation, we discuss Jesus' ideas about brotherly love, why the world isn't generally interested, and how we should respond as the people of God. This is what I've been playing. If you're my age and you rage quit on board games entirely, the game sorry is likely the reason why. You're at the absolute mercy of the dice. If you roll poorly, your player marker can't go where you need to go. In fact, they may not be able to move at all. And all the while, your opponents have the opportunity to displace one of your markers and send it back to where your base is, forcing you to start all over again. And by the way, if you're one of those ones who actually says sorry in that snarky tone of voice and you do, you're a bad person. And I, you can quote me on that. But if you play the game in such a way as to preserve your opponent's feelings, you'll almost certainly lose. And that's true in matters far more consequential than mere board games. Unconditional love of neighbors is a serious stumbling block for most of our neighbors in the world. How can we persuade people to care about the feelings of those who have no intention of returning the favor? The game Sorry is a great place to start. We play that game somewhat regularly at our house even now. And uh, it, it hits home to me because I'm cutthroat. Like, I'll take everybody out. I want to win. The other side of the floor is my wife, Summer, who loses every time because she will not take anyone out. And she expects that they need to take her out for their own self-interest so she doesn't get upset when they knock her back. But she won't knock them back. And then I have three or four kids playing who have like paired up. Uh, the two girls are working together. And so they'll bypass each other, but they'll take the boys out. And of course, the boys are a, a very fragile alliance because they want to return in kind, but they kind of want to beat each other. And so sorry is a fun game for us because it reveals personalities. We can fight and argue, but we love each other. Like we all know that push comes to shove and sometimes it does. We care about each other. In a game setting, and this is where I want to connect it to the world, there can be a game setting where you would know we love each other because uh, it's just the setting. It's the the nature of what's happening right now is competitive. And sometimes the way the boys treat each other, uh, no one would think they loved them. But it's it's just a weird dynamic, isn't it? But we all know that when somebody's sick, somebody's hurting, somebody's getting picked on, uh, when it comes to what's right in Christ, like we're together. And to me, That scales to the world in a way. Uh, I spend a lot of time with people in Lindale where I live and they're competitive situations where people are unkind and they're dismissive situations. And there are times when they want to be near me and there are times when they don't. But somehow I have to behave in a way that has this this foundation. Maybe it's under the surface. They can't even see it because we're at the ball field. Right. And I try to be better at the ball field than I've been in years past. But somehow underneath that, there has to be some feeling that that man's a Christian and he loves God and he cares about me. And we have to establish that. And you say, well, I don't know what's the value of establishing that, because when I talk to them about the gospel, they don't want to hear it or they use bad language around me. It seems like on purpose or in the ball game they cheat or, you know, 
I, I know there will be circumstances where the love is hard to see and it's hard to show, but there still has to be something underneath. And my feeling is that if we aren't careful in the church, we can decide that that's all impossible and it wouldn't do any good anyway. And all the special things that happen are going to get in the way. And so we end up having a us versus them. Christians we love because it pays, because it it's rewarded, because it's acknowledged. The world, we just sort of do this through, you know, and then you're doing this and I'm holding my hands around my eyes like a like a horse with blinders on until you look down and see Jesus sitting at the table with tax collectors and sinners. And you go, um, that's not me because I didn't think that that would help. There has to be a love of neighbor. I mean, Jesus is like, you want to go to heaven? Believe in me, keep my commandments and love your neighbor. Like, it may not look like it's going to pay off, but boy, it sure can. It really can. That foundation can really do something and sprout when you least expect it. Yeah. I guess I should confess that I am not a sorry player. <laughs> <laughs> my my, I'm more a, a risk guy, which also depends on the roll of the dice. I mean, I'm more into greed and ego and world domination uh, on a global scale. Uh, you know, forget board games. Um, and but you know the roll of the dice often governs that, and like Chris says, you're you're playing there even though things can get heated with people that at the end of the day you know they love you if you're dealing with family. I mean, risk with strangers could get to be really risky. But all of that to say that maybe an entry level to establish that kind of rapport is again maybe listening, asking a counter question to get more information. What? Tell me what you meant by that which can not only prevent us from going down a lot of wrong rabbit trails, but also establishes a, a sort of sends a subliminal signal that I, I really am interested in what you think. I'm not so much, you know, just sitting here trying to think up my own answer to your question so I can look really cool and sharp and into the Bible. But I want to hear what you have to say and what got you to this position, what, what got you in my office, what made you respond to this email or this Facebook post or this whatever, so that you get some kind of personal connection that says, I'm willing not so much to throw an answer at you as to listen to what your question really is and why, why you're asking me this question. Right. Good. I like and, that. and by the way, the parallels between our attitude toward one another in game playing and the attitude that we take toward Christians and neighbors in regular life. That's kind of an ongoing conversation in this segment. Every week I, yeah. I handle this in some kind of way. But the idea of caring for people genuinely, unconditional love, that's a hard sell for a lot of people because we have a tendency to like the people that we like. We appreciate the people who do things for us. Is there a way that we can convince people that other people matter? that other people are relevant to my life, not from a selfish standpoint, but from a, a selfless standpoint. One of the things we can do as preachers is just preach on Matthew 25 uh, every Sunday for a year <laughs> and ask the question, I wonder if Jesus was serious. You think Jesus was serious? You think he was just kidding when he said, Hey, in the judgment, what if I just cut through most everything else? And I just look at the people I put in your life. I look at the sick, the hungry, the imprisoned, and he says, I'm just going to look at the way you did that. And I'm going to decide that how you love them is how you love me. And I'm going to take you to heaven or send you to hell. What if Jesus was serious about that? What if he is evaluating this relationship vertical by the people that he puts into our lives? And that's how I would appeal to Christians. And maybe it pays off. Maybe it doesn't. But in general, 
your behavior needs to be, I care about that person. I'll give you an example that always jumps out to me and that's road rage and, uh, and the person driving too slowly in front of me. I want them to know they're driving too slowly. I don't know them. I suspect they need medical attention of some psychological purpose because they're driving 42 and a, and a 55. And so I'm going to kind of come up on them a little bit and I'm going to go around them and I don't know them and they don't know me and it doesn't matter except I need to get to where I need to go. And if you've ever done that, and probably maybe you have, what does it feel like you're going, you're headed to church. What does it feel like when they turn into the church parking lot right in front of you? What changes? You panic. You don't know what to do. Should I drive around the block a couple of times so they don't know it's me? Should I park in the back? What generally was just about me and not about that person, because I don't know that person. I don't care about that person. All of a sudden, boom, it became personal and I feel awful and I wish I could just go back. And Christians have to have that idea of, I don't know who's in the car. Maybe it's somebody who's fighting cancer. Maybe it's a total jerk who's generally going slow on purpose and he keeps doing his windshield wipers because he knows it's splashing across my windshield. Or maybe it's a brother or sister in Christ. I have to have a baseline love for people so that when it becomes contentious, ball games or personal, uh, I, I've laid down some rapport. And, and I guess my thing, I don't know how that becomes difficult for me only when Chris is thinking about Chris. When Chris stops thinking about Chris, it's actually not that hard. It's not hard to love people who hate you if it's not about you. That's in some ways a kind of a, a, a two. I like your example because we've probably all been there. I, ha- I certainly have. I'll, I'll acknowledge that. But, you know, sometimes you can also find yourself in a situation where not knowing the other person almost becomes too important to us. I mean, I've, I've been in situations where I've been in a heated argument with a family member who I love, and we're just going back and forth, you know, hammer and tong, and the phone rings, and it's somebody, you know, trying to sell me something or somebody that I have no relationship with. I'm like, hello, in my sweetest, you know, warmest, mm. how are you doing kind of a voice. So I'm treating somebody that I have no investment in, in some ways, maybe better than, than a person that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. But as Christians, we have an obligation, whether the person is rich, poor, black, white, polka dot, educated, uneducated, male, female, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. We're supposed to love them all and, and have the same kind of eternal concern for them. But unconditional love also means in another context, or does it, that I'm supposed to continue to love somebody regardless of the condition of their behavior that they just simply continue to not listen to the word. They continually rebel against God. They continually do destructive things that affects other people around them. I mean, does God really, I mean, is that the Matthew 25 scenario? I mean, does God really expect me to love that person regardless of their behavior, which is what a lot of people that I encounter anyway seem to think unconditional love is. So I'll throw that card out on the table, if you will, or spin that dice. And and yes, Chris, I do have another story, but we'll hold that for another time. Oh, I love the story. <laughs> well, I have the other half of Chris's story. Uh, it was me in front of Chris, actually, in the 50, and I was not going 42. I was going 53 in the 55, and Chris was trying to go 80. And the 
the the flip side to that argument is, and this comes up a lot. I've taken when I'm passed by the maniac, and it wasn't really Chris, actually, of course, but when, when the the fellow who clearly has much more important things going on in his life than I do, and he just whizzes on by. I just whoever's in the cards that well, I hope he gets there in time. Yeah. You know, and just this has nothing to do with me. He did not ruin my life. Uh, thankfully, he could have with a little bit of effort. He could have, and he chose not to, and that's fine. Maybe he's got a pregnant woman in the car and she's in labor. You know, maybe he's bleeding from his eyeballs. Who knows what's going on in this person's life? It's none of my business. I, I don't have to get all worked up about this stranger that I'm never going to meet the rest of my life. Yeah. Or as Chris says, maybe I will meet him. You know, and maybe I need to have an attitude adjustment before I meet him. It's important for us to, to connect with people on a spiritual level, not just on a basis of what they can do for me or what they're doing for me or what they're doing to me. In any given moment, but this is a child of God, uh, someone who who has a soul, someone who is has their own problems and their own struggles, just like I do. And if I can learn patience in that kind of situation, it may not help that person, but it'll help me. And that's really what it's all about. These encounters are not about me improving the world. Like if I blow my horn enough, bad drivers going to quit being bad drivers. That's insane. There's there's no reason in the world that's going to work. But if I quit blowing my horn all the time, if I develop patience, I can become a better person. And, and I try to, to look at unfortunate encounters with unlovable people in that kind of way. You know, this person parked his shopping cart behind my car. I'll move it out of the way. We'll move on. I'm not going to ruin my life over this. Yeah. Well, it comes back to me to simple language. And it's that we need Jesus. Like, I need Jesus. I make all those mistakes you guys are talking about. I'm sometimes the irreverent one. I, I need Jesus so badly. And if I will remember that, then so do they. And the worse they behave, you could say it's the more they need Jesus. You know, the people who behave the worst, they just need him so, so badly. And I need him and he loves me and he loves them. And and it's it's a process. First of all, if if I'm at the center of this whole thing, it's just going to go badly. Uh, so I got to get myself out of the center. But that's not enough either. Just thinking more about them than me is still not going to be enough because eventually they're going to wear out their welcome with their behavior. But if it's really about Jesus and how much they need Jesus, I'll give you an example of the ball field. Uh, there's a guy that uh, we've locked horns every year with our kids and He's won most of them and he's cutthroat and his attitude. And there have been plenty of times when I started off kind and he got raw and I got raw and it just happened. It happened more times than not. And I started thinking through it and working through it and praying through it. And this last year it got similar to that. And I remember walking back and just walking off and the people in, on our side of the stands were like, why didn't you? And I said, he, and I said this, I said it five times. I said, that guy just needs Jesus. Like that guy needs Jesus. And it was helping me. It was like therapeutic for me to say out loud. I did not act like that because he just needs Christ and he doesn't have him in his life. And it changed my whole behavior because it's true. I need him and he needs him. And, you know, you would probably not be surprised to learn that we're actually going to coach together this year. And we've talked about church and what in the world changed a lot changed because my focus changed. And he, he is lovable. You know, I don't know, uh, you, you put something like, how can we persuade people to care about the feelings of those who have no intention of returning the favor? They may not have any intention of returning the favor, but you can trigger a return of favor. That's how love works. It's incredible. You can turn the darkest, the hardest. If they, going back to our opening segments, if they believe that you're not out for you, and if they believe there's someone bigger in the picture, people can change. 
And that's hope because you changed. And if you did, they can too. Jesus talked about returning evil for evil or not doing that, actually. And scripture says a good bit more about it than than that as well. And, you know, Lord, please don't let me be the impediment to somebody else coming to know Jesus because I'm misbehaving out of my own anger and greed and whatever it might happen to be. And we all, you know, wind up in situations like that. I mean, with Chicago traffic, it's not so much trying to do 55 or 80 or, or even 45, it's gridlock. You know, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the big conundrum is, you know, which of these five lanes do I need to be in, which is going to move, you know, two miles an hour faster than the others. And you get other people competing for that. And so things can sometimes get ugly. But, you know, what I tried to teach my kids, if somebody's honking at you, is, you know, just repeat to yourself, uh, horn works, try the lights. I mean, it doesn't really matter that, you know, in a case like that, you just don't want to become a part of the problem. And you sure don't want to slug the tar baby because that just pulls you in to that sort of thing. The story I was going to tell, Chris, I'll go ahead because I want to kind of get us back to uh, maybe we can talk more about what unconditional love actually means or, or looks like in a minute. But listening to what somebody's actually saying, when I was a younger preacher, uh, we had a very well-known preacher who has since become a good friend of mine. I didn't know him very well, except by reputation at the time. And uh, he came and in the advertising for that meeting, we had somebody who started writing, saw an, actually an article in the newspaper and wrote in, and he was a seminary student at a seminary, not, not for a denominational seminary. And he came to the meeting several times and during the week said, can we sit down and have breakfast together, the three of us, visiting preacher, myself and, and this guy. And so we did. And after getting to know each other a little better on the you know surface, small talk, uh, he said, well, here's my question for you guys. Do you consider me, despite the fact that we disagree on issues, do you consider me a brother in Christ and an ally in his cause? Or am I someone who needs to be converted and maybe is even an enemy? Hmm. Well, now that'll wake you up in the morning. Well, I let my friend go first and he, to his credit, maybe bit the bullet and gave kind of the standard answer. No, you, you need to, you know, be converted to the Lord in this way and, you know, come to, and so forth. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm not trying to pump myself up because I, if I'd gone first, I probably would have gotten the same answer. But when my turn came to say something, I said, well, I guess to answer that question, I would need you to tell me what you did to become a Christian. What is it that makes you think you are a Christian? And his answer was, well, when I was 13, I was baptized in a group that called itself the Church of Christ. And then because of family circumstances, wandered off in a, in a different direction. Hmm. Well, now that does put a different spin on the conversation now, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So if, if sometimes if we're willing to give the other person enough credibility and show them enough honest respect to say, I want to hear what you think about this. I want to hear what got you where you are. I want to listen to and actively listen to what you're saying. I, I think that just cuts through a whole lot of sometimes anyway, of problems and issues that we maybe we create for ourselves when we're too interested in being the guy with the answer. That's, that's not okay. always a good thing. That's so good. Maybe it's not as contentious as we think. Maybe there are roads to unity that we didn't see. I mean, that changed everything. Uh, I love Simon Sinek's uh, speeches and books, Always Speak Last. 
when you speak last, you know the most because you know what they what they said and you've you've calculated that in and chances are they'll listen. Similar story a couple of years ago, Steve, where there was a guy who came to our church and he heard me teach on divorce and remarriage. We got so mad, he was so, so mad about it and said he'd never come back. And finally I, I had him meet with me and it was contentious and he married this woman and this whole thing. And, and he just, he might, he said, so I might see where you're coming from, but I could never see God doing that in my life and the whole deal, you know? And at the end I was very quiet, you know, and I tried to ask him questions and I said, well, your, your first wife, where does she live today? And he said, well, she died 10 years ago. And I was like, Oh, okay. So, you know, still a heart issue. Look, there's still heart issues. His heart, that guy's heart's not right. Okay. But the road to fellowship was not the road that I instinctively thought it was going to be, which we think is like impassable. Right. And all of a sudden, maybe we just need to work on hearts and there's yeah. hope. Hope is awesome. Uh, always speak last has been a big mantra that I do not always apply, yeah. but it rewards when I do. It's easier to say and know than to do. And the question behind the question which is often what's on the person's mind. They're not often asking the question that they really want to know the answer to. And partly it's my job, I think, as, as someone who's trying to model the Lord. I mean, the Lord asked a lot of leading questions that got to the heart of the issue that wasn't always laying there right on the surface. And I, I have to learn to, to follow that model more than I have been able to in times past. I was looking at the idea of loving your enemy and turning the other cheek and all these crazy things that Jesus says in the the Sermon on the Mount that come back to this general idea that I have to show honor, I have to show deference to my fellow human being, and what they are doing in response to me is not nearly as relevant as I like to think. I think the reason that that doesn't resonate with people in the world is because we keep expecting Jesus to fix the problems in our life. We expect Jesus to make our world nicer and cleaner and better and more politically correct and and all the rest of this. And we look at Jesus' so-called solutions, and they don't work. This is never going to get me where I want to go. But it's not about that. And that's that's the conversation that that we, we try to have with people who are not right with God. This is not about fixing your world. This is not about fixing the world as far as that goes. The world is broken. The world belongs to the devil. It has from the beginning. It's not likely to change anytime soon. We're talking about fixing me. If I can become the kind of person that Jesus says to be, then I'm going to be better off. And maybe it'll have a ripple effect on somebody else. Maybe I'll be able to shine my light and let them glorify God when they see my good works. And maybe not. But if I can find contentment in being Jesus kind of person, if that's the appeal, then I got a shot. And I think that's the problem with the unconditional love that we're talking about here. The people out there in the world are not drawn to that. They don't think in those kind of terms. If we can show it in our own life, this is, this is the kind of impact Jesus is having on me. This is why I love the life that I'm living, why I'm so glad that I have embraced Jesus. Chris was touching on this uh, earlier. There's an appeal there. When people see the peace that passes understanding in our lives, when they see us rejoicing uh, in all situations, there's got to be a part of 
the hearts of these unrighteous, wicked, sinful people out there in the world that sees that and values that. Wouldn't it be great if I felt like that all the time? Second Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul said, I'm well content. And, you know, I I did a lesson a few weeks ago where I was like, Hey, quick question. Did he have an easy life or a hard life? Uh, Did he have physical well-being or physical turmoil? Did he have stability or was it uncertainty? And of course the answer, we know the answer of all three. And, and I, I said to the Christians in the room and think about this from a Christian standpoint, does it trouble you that, if you ask God for the things you needed to be content, you would be asking him to give you things that he never gave Paul. Does it confuse you that you feel like you need things that Jesus didn't get that Paul didn't get? And of course that's supposed to be the world. The world's way of thinking is there are things in the flesh that I need. And if I get those things, I'll be content. And we're out there going, actually, you're probably never going to get those things. And if you do get them, you won't have them for very long. And if you have them for a long time, they won't fulfill you. I want to talk to you about, something spiritual that comes from Jesus. But a lot of the problem is our own Americanized Christians, they don't get it either. And so this idea of unconditional love where you really look at the world and it's, it's godlessness and it's sin and you just feel sorry for them. You feel like uh, to use an old movie reference, they're in the matrix, you know, there's all this dimension and reality and, and beyond. And they're just like stuck in it doing this. And you you don't get mad at them for being stuck. You feel sorry for them and you want to liberate them and help them. But sometimes our own brethren are stuck in the same suits, you know, and the spiritual view of Jesus is the answer to everything. And and it starts with us. But it just it, it keeps me from being angry. I mean, Christians were beaten to death and yet they were supposed to love their oppressor to death. How do you do that? Unless you have a view that has a dimension not of this world and unconditional love is found in that dimension alone and nowhere else. You know, if they see me as uber competitive and I'm, or they see me as I'm more interested in my political candidate or my uh, view of, of politics or my sports team. And I'm willing to, you know, uh, not only go to all the home games, but go to all the away games if it involves travel. But I, they don't see that same level of commitment and life-changing involvement in me when it comes to what I say is most important, which is my relationship with Jesus Christ. People smell that hypocrisy right off the bat. If that's what they see in me, then, then I'm an impediment to getting them to the word leading to the word. And I'm afraid you're right, Chris, absolutely, that in too many of us as Christians, what people see is an investment in material things. It's an investment in temporal ideas. It's an investment in our education. It's an investment in whatever trivial pursuits we may have in life that seems so important and so consuming at the time. And we have to change that equation for our own good, but as well as for what other people may be able to see in us. And not that we're the answer to the solution, but sometimes we can be the blockade to to keep them from getting to what they really need in the Word. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.